Hello and welcome to Nudge. I'm your host, Phil Agnew. Now there is endless advice out there for the modern day entrepreneur. There is countless hours of podcasts, millions of blogs and tons of YouTube series. It really is a topic that is widely covered. What's interesting, however, is that most of the advice comes in the form of anecdotes and success stories from individuals, whether it's the brilliant podcast How I Built This or popular TV shows like Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. Much of the advice on entrepreneurship comes from a single individual's experience. Here on Nudge, we're not very interested in learning how one person found success. Instead, we like to focus on the science that shows why success is possible. So in today's show, I feel very grateful to speak to Melina Palmer. Melina is host of the Brainy Business Podcast and has dedicated her career to seeking answers to questions like why do people buy and what influences consumer behavior. After building her own business, growing her brilliant podcast and deeply studying the world of behavior economics, she has some great advice for entrepreneurs. But before we get into that, I asked Melina to talk about how she first became interested in behavior economics. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Yeah, so a little about me is that I got my undergraduate degree in business administration with a focus in marketing. And when I was in school, you know, there was just this little bit that had to do with the psychology of buying behavior and and why people make choices. And I was immediately hooked, but uh, in a way that I wasn't then able to find anything when I, after I got my undergrad, I was reaching out to different universities to see, you know, what programs they had in master's degrees and stuff at in that particular area and um, was told for the better part of 10 years that that program doesn't exist. That's not a thing. So didn't really have any outlet to go and learn from. And then a few years ago, I was at an event and in an innovation program I was a part of, and they brought out um, 
some people from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University were presenting to this innovation group that I was in as part of my corporate life. And I realized that this was the field that I had been looking for. And they told me it was called behavioral economics. And I promptly found myself a master's program. And uh, here we are. So then I ended up leaving corporate, starting my own business. I had been doing freelance work on the side already for a couple of years when I started that. So it was a pretty easy transition. And I started my own podcast and kind of transitioned my business to be from doing like hands-on sort of marketing type agency work to be doing behavioral economics consultancy. And um, yeah, here we are. To start our discussion about entrepreneurship, I asked Melina about survivorship bias. This is the idea that we only learn from those who succeed and therefore get a warped view of what success looks like. Here's Melina introducing that bias and explaining the history behind it. This is one of those that everything we see and all the stuff we seek out when we're looking for advice, when you go to find stories, you don't really realize how much you're cutting out and that you, you're you missing what's missing from the equation. And so I think to really properly explain how this all comes together and how the bias works is to talk about how it was discovered, which was based on planes in World War II that were going out and they were realizing, you know, you kind of had this like 50-50 shot that you're going to make it back. And so they were wanting to look at where you need to reinforce the planes so that you're going to improve your chances because even the smallest advantage could be a turning point in the war. And so the allies were looking at the planes. They asked for people to be analyzing where there were bullet holes to help determine where they should reinforce because while it would be nice to put that really heavy thick metal along the entire plane. There's a reason that tanks don't fly. So that can't happen. You have to be selective with where you reinforce. And so they went through basically and had all the pilots marking the bullet holes on the planes for when they came back and stacked them all up as cards to see those data points and where there were bullet holes. And there were very clear patterns that emerged, you know, spots on the wings, uh, parts of the tail, that had holes and there were some very clear gaps that didn't. And at the time, you know, then the generals that were looking at it said, okay, perfect. This is where the holes are. So that's where we need to reinforce because that's where they're getting shot. And thankfully, <laughs> some, you know, the economist working on it was able to say like, no, no, no. You know, he was able to say, you're missing all the planes that didn't come back. Like there, it's not that there's something magical about these spots that they're not getting hit by by bullets, it's that those are the spots that actually need to be reinforced because the ones that are shot here are likely not going to return. So when you look at stories of success only, it's very hard to find stories with advice from people who failed at starting businesses unless they became successful later on. And so that's where we look at, you know, the stories of, you know, Jim Carrey, was, you know, lived in his car for however long and that uh, Bill Gates dropped out of college. And then you say like, well, if I drop out of college, then I'm going to be a billionaire too. And you forget about the millions and millions and millions of people that drop out of college and don't go on to become billionaires or even millionaire success stories because you just don't see them. 
Those World War II planes only came back with holes in the wings and the tails because the planes that were shot in the cockpit would get destroyed and wouldn't return. Melina draws a great analogy with entrepreneurs. We only hear success stories from those who have had the fortune of being in the right place at the right time. It's wrong to solely follow their advice as it means you're missing the bigger picture, the thousands of others who failed. We read about entrepreneurs that find success by waking up at 5am or moving to San Fran or even meditating several times a day and many of us follow this advice. But only learning from the successful or the survivors is doomed to fail. Here's Melina giving a great example of why that is. In my undergraduate program, there was a computer software simulation that we did in one of our capstone classes where essentially you are in a small team. I think we had four people and we formed the it's like a company that sells cameras, I think was what we were working on. And so everyone else in the class and there are like eight different quote unquote camera companies and that we have a series of decisions that you have to make of if you want to be the, you know, do you want to be high quality and higher price and you're going to invest in a lot of research and development and marketing expenses, or do you want to be the lower quality and you can come in at a lower price point to impact the market in that way, how you pay off your loans, you know, all these different decisions that you make. And then essentially in class each day, you make a series of choices and input them and everything goes in and that ends up being a quarter of these fictitious sort of results. And then you can be running and see what happens when all eight camera companies are doing the same thing and they're introduced into a market together and competing against each other. And it's running these algorithms in the background to see, you know, based on we came in at $135, but there was someone at 120 And so it made a big impact. And what I would see is in that environment where people would come back, you know, the following year. So maybe they had run this. It's called BizSim was the thing. So they would do their BizSim this summer and their team wins. Like we we made the decision. Our team wins. Yay for us. Then they would come back and be in a new team. And as everybody's picking roles and stuff, they would say, hey, you guys, I did this last year, my team dominated, we're amazing. And the entire team would say, great, we'll just use you and you make exactly all the same inputs, all the same choices you did last year. And you would see these epic failures where the year before they win, you make all the exact same inputs the following year and you lose triumphantly against everybody else. Because just because it worked once doesn't mean it's going to work again. And so when you see even an entrepreneur that starts a movement or does this cause or gets all the followers on Instagram or whatever it is, and they say, this is the exact thing that I did, and you go do it, it doesn't mean it's going to work. Another great example of the survivorship bias comes from a 1987 study on cats. The study from 1987 reported that cats who fell from less than a six-story height had greater injuries than cats who fell from higher than six stories. It had been proposed that cats who fall from a greater height reach terminal velocity and correct their balance while falling, leading to less severe injuries. Now this sounds plausible. What else would explain why so few cats who fell from six stories or more had bad injuries? Well, it could be another issue with survivorship bias. Cats that die in falls are far less likely to be brought into a vet than injured cats, and thus many of the cats killed in falls from higher buildings were never reported in that 1987 study. 
Only learning from survivors and success distorts your view and can lead you to false assumptions. But it's not the only thing entrepreneurs need to be aware of. One of the most common mistakes entrepreneurs make is miscalculating how long a project will take. It's known as the planning fallacy. This bias reveals our tendency to underestimate the amount of time it will take to complete a task as well as the costs and risks associated with that task. Here's Melina talking through planning fallacy. One of the big roots, the problems with planning fallacy is because we have an optimism bias. We look at ourselves and think we're going to be better, faster, stronger, smarter, more efficient than we were yesterday or a year ago or whatever it is for no real reason that we should believe that, but our brains want to think that we're always going to be better than we were. So you are expecting that everything's going to go well, and you completely forget about all these extrinsic things that happen. So the lunch breaks, the kids bugging you, the phone call that's going to come in, the other client that's going to have an email come in that you they have an emergency you need to help with, all these things that can happen, you don't plan in when you're setting up your timelines of how long something is going to take. So you are eliminating those external things, which are inevitable. They always happen. And you're coming up with the most optimistic view of time, one that is unreasonable uh, for how long something is going to take you. A study by Buller, Griffin and Ross asked 465 undergraduate students to estimate the amount of time it would take them to complete their thesis. Now, by the time the students reach their undergraduate, they should be fairly good at predicting how long a piece of coursework might take. They have spent years working on similar projects, so all the students had good benchmarks to base their predictions. And yet, the study found that students consistently underestimated their completion time and failed to take into account their previous experiences. Here's Melina talking through that study. With the college students, and it was planning for their thesis projects and papers, you know, so you ask them how long it would take them to complete the projects. And I don't like can't guarantee that the exact numbers, but it was something where they said it would take about 28 days, I think, to get it done. And then they were asked, so if everything goes right and it's amazing, how long will it take? If it's, you know, all the worst, the very worst case scenario, most extreme, ridiculous, will never happen, you know, what do you expect? And so, you know, instead of it being the 28 days, they said the best case was they'd get it done in like 21 days and that the worst case was 35 days or, you know, something along those lines. And so push comes to shove, how long does it actually take? And it's like 56 days or something. So, you know, double what they originally thought, three times what the best case scenario and it's even worse than their most extreme, where you're prompted to say, like, if everything goes wrong, how long will it take? And it exceeded that by a very significant margin. But it's not just students. Surveys confirm that the planning fallacy is astonishingly common. In schools and universities, it can be seen among both students and staff. In IT, surveys suggest that fewer than one third of projects meet their initial deadline. In industrial research and design, projects take about 3.5 times longer than expected. And as we know, it's the bane of authors as well. Informal estimates suggest that up to 90% of professional writers are late in delivering their manuscripts. 
The planning fallacy is vital for entrepreneurs to consider and recognize. Starting a new venture with unrealistic plans is setting yourself up for misery and missed deadlines in the future. Do yourself a favor and acknowledge the planning fallacy before you start your next project. But let's say you've successfully navigated the planning fallacy. Let's say you've avoided survivorship bias and managed to gather the right advice from a mix of different people. But you're still not out of the clear. There's another crucial bias to be aware of. Here's Melina talking through the Hawthorne effect, something every entrepreneur needs to know about. The Hawthorne effect is something that was discovered in the 1920s, that they were looking at ways to improve productivity in in an electricity company in Hawthorne. That was the name of it. That's how the effect got named. And so what they were looking at is if you were to you know, turn the lights up or down, does that improve productivity and changing times of breaks and things like that? And through those studies, what they ended up finding was, yes, when they made the lights brighter, productivity went up. But They also had productivity go up when they turned the lights down, some ways all the way down to where they were like candlelight, and when it stayed the same. And so in the first round of tests, that was perplexing, and they basically said, "Mm, let's not look at that anymore. You know, don't pull it, whatever that thread is. When you're observing something, it impacts the results, and that's just the nature of any test. And if you think about, you know, if I was to say, hey, you're boss's boss is coming in to watch the meeting tomorrow. And they say, just, you know, act normally. They just want to see how you typically behave. Is there any chance that the team acts normally knowing that the boss's boss is sitting in? No, it it just won't happen, right? Because we know the stakes, it's going to change our behavior. The Hawthorne effect shows that individuals modify their behavior when they know they're being observed. As bosses at Hawthorne learnt that any changes they made to the factory seemed to improve productivity, but not because the light was turned off or on, simply because the workers realised they were being observed and monitored. It's a crucial rule to be aware of when managing people. Implementing a new process might seem successful at first as productivity goes up, but it may simply be because you're paying attention and monitoring your staff. So how do you avoid this as a boss? I asked Melina. So if you want to see how a team is naturally working to find maybe opportunities to um, create some efficiencies or add value for them, if you let them know what you're looking for and say, hey, I'm looking for ways that we can be more efficient and that you can be happier, they'll just sort of inherently act the way that they think you want them to, even if they they will say that they're not changing their behavior. It's just we can't really stop ourselves from doing that. So if you're able to observe more naturally and think about like photographers in the wild where when you first go into a space, you're very obvious and there are no animals that are going to come around you because they can tell that you're there. But once you've been there long enough, they just ignore, right? They're used to you being there and they don't care anymore and they know that you're not going to attack them or whatever it is. And so when you blend in, then you can really see what's happening. It's the same thing with the team. You don't want to be popping in and out all the time and showing up once a week. You're not going to get the same impact as if you stay for an entire, a full week or three days in a row. And then you can really be part of that team and then find those opportunities where there might be room for improvement. 
Avoiding the Hawthorne effect with your team won't be easy, but giving changes time to embed is one way. Don't implement a new practice, observe for a day and then make a decision. Instead, spend weeks checking in with the team to make sure the improvements are genuine and not just down to the Hawthorne effect. Before we go, I had one more question for Melina. I wondered when it is a good idea to tell people that they are being observed and when we should steer clear of it. If you do have more mundane, repetitive tasks, it's actually been shown to be a positive thing for people to know that they're being monitored. So there was a study that was done in a garment factory where they had people scanning RFID tags when they start a process and then again when they've completed the item. And for really simple things like doing a hem at the bottom of pant leg or, you know, maybe sewing a button or something, it was actually really good to have the monitoring because people kind of turned it into a game to be able to do, I did 10 in the last hour, I want to do 12 this time around. So having that monitoring was positive. When it was a more complex task, something that took more time and skill, people felt like they were being rushed, like they were being judged, like there were these consequences. It created a lot of extra stress and productivity would actually go down. So understanding the type of task that you're trying to get people to accomplish can determine whether it's good for them to feel like they're being watched or not. Now, there is a lot to consider when starting your own project or growing your own business, but these are three biases that every entrepreneur should be aware of. The survivorship bias shows that listening to success stories won't always provide the right answers. Planning fallacy reveals that even the best, well-made plans aren't likely to be accurate. And the Hawthorne effect highlights that people always act differently when being observed, so keep that in mind when you try to implement a new process. There are, of course, many more biases to be aware of and many more tips for entrepreneurs. For those interested in finding out more, I'd highly recommend listening to Melina's podcast, Brainy Business. Melina goes into detail on specific biases and has interviewed some of the smartest people in the space. She also runs her own workshops and certifications, so reach out to her if you would like some training. Now that's all from me today. Make sure you don't miss the next nudge in two weeks by signing up to the email mailing list. The link to the email mailing list is in the show notes. And if you sign up there, I'll send you an email every time a new show goes live. And if you have one minute to spare right now, please join 50 wonderful other nudge listeners and help me out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show grow. And I'd be very grateful to anybody who does leave a review. Anyway, that is all from me today. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.